We are unapologetically Jesus people. We love Jesus. We listen to Jesus. We talk to Jesus. We talk about Jesus. We sing to Jesus. We worship Jesus. We study Jesus. We're on mission with Jesus. We are unapologetically Jesus people. In fact, if you don't like Jesus, you're not going to like this place very much. Because we're all about Jesus. The strongest bond that we share is our unity in Christ. Just take a look around. There's some diversity here. We have differing backgrounds, differing ages and gender and socioeconomic backgrounds. We have different likes and hobbies and dislikes and interests. We have different football affiliations. I mean, we have some differences. But the one thing that unites us is our commitment to Christ. We are unapologetically Jesus people. When I think about passages of Scripture that exalt the name of Christ, Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 to 11 comes to mind. Today we continue our study of that New Testament letter. I invite you to take your Bible and turn there. I'll begin reading in Philippians chapter 2, verse 1. I'll conclude at verse 11. I ask you to stand out of reverence to the public reading of God's holy word. Philippians chapter 2, allow me to begin at verse 1. If you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any fellowship with the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and purpose. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should Look not only to your own interest, but also to the interest of others. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. But he made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself, became obedient to death, even death on a cross." Therefore God exalted him to the highest place, gave him the name that's above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. May God add his richest blessing to the reading, preaching, understanding, and obedience to his perfect word. You may be seated. The Philippian church was founded on Paul's second missionary journey. It was a good church, but it wasn't a perfect church. I know a lot of good churches, but I don't know any perfect churches. The Philippian church was united in love. They were eager in evangelism. They were generous with their resources, but they were not perfect. They had external struggle and internal strife. And 2,000 years have passed and not a whole lot has changed because the adversary comes against the congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ externally and internally, both on the outside of the stained glass windows and on the inside of the stained glass windows. In Philippi, externally, there were some false teachers that were coming into the church trying to peddle a false gospel. So in a place like Philippians chapter 3, Paul says, beware of those dogs, those men who do evil, those mutilators of the flesh. Those are not terms of endearment. I mean, he is not being complimentary. He's being critical of these false teachers peddling a false gospel. 
Also, internally, there's some struggle and strife. In Philippians chapter 4, he straight up calls out two ladies of the church. He says, I plead with you, Odia, and I plead with Syntyche. Agree with each other in the Lord. I don't know why they were fighting. I just know they're at each other's throats. And everybody in the church knows about the argument. They know about the fight because all Paul has to do is lift up the name Euodia and Syntyche and everybody goes, yeah, I know what he's talking about. I mean, can you imagine how these ladies felt being called out by their founding pastor? I plead with Euodia and I plead with Syntyche. Y'all need to stop fighting and y'all need to start getting together and uh, being united in Christ. Can you imagine if I did that today? I mean, I've got a list in my hip pocket. No, no, not really. But can you imagine if I had a list of names and I just said, hey, let me call out this person and that person and this person and that person, and we got to agree with each other in the Lord. But regardless, there was internal struggle and external strife. Even in our passage, Paul says, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Consider others better than yourselves. Why would Paul have to say that? Because people in that church, they were being selfish and they were being conceited and they were doing things with nobody else in mind but themselves. They weren't thinking about other people. They weren't thinking about others. They were just wrapped up in what they wanted to do and how they thought and how they wanted to act. Selfish, conceited, thinking of themselves more than others. You come to verse 5. And Paul just simply says, your attitude should be like that of Christ Jesus. The word attitude is mindset. You ought to have the mind of Christ. What Paul is saying is the way you deal with external struggle and internal strife is that you focus intently upon the one thing that unites us. And the one thing that unites us is greater than anything that might divide us. The one thing that unites us is the Lord Jesus Christ. So the bigger we make him, the smaller we make our problems. The more focused we are on Christ, the less focused we are on our conflicts. So we ought to be united in him. If you know his identity and his activity, you'll understand why we're united in Christ. So what follows are six verses that some have said Paul imported as a hymn of the Christian faith that he got from other like-minded believers in the first century. I don't think that what Paul writes in Philippians chapter 2 is some imported hymn. I think he is writing exalted prose. I think he's under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and I think he's telling the church, listen, this is how we must be united in Christ. We have the mind of Christ. It unites us, and what unites us is far greater than anything that might divide us, whether the division comes externally or internally. So we're united in Christ, so let your mindset, let your attitude be like that of Christ Jesus, who being in the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. From the very outset, Paul says, if you know his identity and you remember his activity, then you realize we'll be united in him. Who is Jesus? Very nature, God. From the very outset, what Paul is reminding the church is that according to the gospel that I've delivered to you faithfully uh, unto all the saints, the gospel that I proclaim to you is that Jesus is God. Remember Jesus, who is very nature God. That word nature is the Greek word morphe. The word morphe could be understood as form or nature, perhaps even image. But the word morphe carries a meaning of unaltered essence. Jesus 
in his unaltered essence is God. It's not that Jesus is another God, a lesser God, a creation of God, a second-rate God. He is God. He is very God. His nature is God. He is God. His unaltered essence is God. He couldn't change it even if he wanted to. That's why Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father, for I and the Father are one. His morphe, his essence, his nature never changes. I realize that his outward form changed. I mean, he came as a teeny tiny baby, right? But he didn't stay that way. He became a boy who grew into a teenager who then became an adult man. His outward form changed, but his unaltered essence never changed because it can't change. He is very nature God. That's why I think Jesus gets thoroughly offended when anybody demotes him. And people demote him all the time by saying he is a religious figure, he is a great man, he is a good teacher. Now, he is a religious figure, and he is a great man, and he is a good teacher, but he's so much more than that. He is very nature God. His morphe, his unaltered essence is God. So Paul reminds the church, your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who being in the very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. In that statement, he declares that Jesus is equal with God. Jesus is equal with God. Co-eternal, co-existent, co-equal. Jesus is God. Yet that equality with God was not something that Jesus grasped. The word grasp means to exploit or to take advantage of. Jesus could have shown off, but he didn't. He could have exploited his rights and his privileges, but he didn't. He could have taken advantage of the fact that he's the second person of the Trinity, that he is the son of God Almighty. He could have exploited that favor, but he didn't. When it says that he did not grasp it or he did not exploit it, he didn't take advantage of it. The original language is the imagery of a robber clinging to his loot. If a robber steals stuff from your house, he's going to clutch that stuff because he doesn't want anybody to take it away. That is not how Jesus is portrayed. Jesus is not a robber who came out of heaven clinging to his loot. No, he is equal with God. But he did not consider equality with God something to be exploited, something to be grasped. So what did he do? Scripture says that he made himself nothing. Literally, the language reads, he emptied himself. What did he empty himself of? That's the question throughout the ages. What did Jesus empty himself of when he stepped out of heaven and stepped into earth? I'll tell you what the answer is not. The answer is not his divinity. Jesus did not empty himself of his divinity. After all, his divine, unaltered essence is God. He could not have emptied himself of his divinity even if he wanted to. He is completely God. And so there's no way he could have emptied himself of himself. He could have emptied himself of his essence. He could not have emptied himself of his morphe. He is God. So what did he empty himself of? And the best way I can answer that 
is that he emptied himself of his rights and his privileges. How do you see that worked out? There are occasions where Jesus self-limits his omniscience, his omnipotence. There were occasions when he self-limited his omniscience. The word omniscience means that he knows everything. And certainly Jesus does know everything because he is God. You remember the time when he's in the home of Simon the Pharisee and he says to Simon, Simon, I know what you're thinking. Isn't that spooky? That Jesus knows your thoughts. He knows the attitude behind your thoughts. I mean, it is, it is eerie how well Jesus knows us. And when we have to say it, he can read our mind. Why? Because he knows everything. Oh, but there are occasions when he self-limited that omniscience. You remember one time Jesus said, uh, regarding dates and times of the second coming, uh, Son of Man doesn't know. Only the Father in heaven knows. Now, is Jesus lying to us? No. Is he toying with us? No. Is he just playing with us? Saying, well, I kind of know, but I'm not going to tell you that I know. No, he's not doing any of that. He self-limited his knowledge so that he could honestly say regarding dates and times, I do not know. There were other occasions when he self-limited his omnipotence. The word omnipotence means power. Certainly, there were times when Jesus demonstrated his God power, right? He stands in front of the tomb of his BFF, Lazarus, and he peers into death. He orders for the stone to be rolled away, and he says, Lazarus, come out. (laughs) And the dead man comes hopping out of the grave. I mean, that's power. Only God can do that. Most of his miracles, all of his miracles are God-sized miracles. The one miracle that's recorded in all four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, outside the resurrection of Christ, the only other miracle is the feeding of the 5,000. And Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they all tell us, and the details are all the same. He took five loaves of bread and two fish, and he fed the multitudes. Only God could do that. Oh, but there were times when he self-limited his own omnipotence, right? He self-limited his power. When he was on the cross, he could have called 10,000 angels. Don't think for one second that a few rusty spikes through his wrists and his feet kept him and held him on the cross. No, he could have called down 10,000 angels. Those rusty spikes were nothing. Those few obnoxious soldiers, they were nothing. Jesus could have flexed his muscles and shown his omnipotence, but instead he self limited his omniscience to say that he emptied himself is to say he emptied himself of his rights and his privileges because the one who spoke the world into existence had to learn how to talk the one who walked with Shadrach Meshach and Abednego in the fiery furnace he had to learn how to crawl The one who is the ancient of days became the infant of days. The one who owns the cattle on a thousand hills and owns all the hills as well had to borrow just about everything in his life. He had to borrow a barn to be born. He had to borrow a boat and turn it into an aquatic pulpit. He had to borrow a donkey to ride into town the very last week of his life. He had to borrow an upper room to observe the Passover with his disciples. He even had to borrow a tomb to lay his dead corpse. The one who owns everything, self-limited. 
The one who owns everything, has access to everything, for he spoke it and it came into being. He laid down all those rights and privileges so that he was raised in poverty. He lived in obscurity. Nobody really thought he was much to look at. He limited himself. Jesus, being in the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. So he made himself nothing. How do you know that he made himself nothing? The very next line. He took the very nature of a servant. There's that word again, nature. It's the original Greek word morphe. It's unaltered essence. So Jesus is one person with two natures. He's one person, but he has two unaltered natures, unaltered morphes. He is the unaltered essence God. He's also unaltered essence human because he took the form of a servant. Jesus said, I did not come to be served, but I came to serve. He came to earth as a human. He appeared as a man. The reason he appeared as a man is because he was a man. He was fully man. I guess that God could have sent the Savior in either of the genders, but he chose to send the Savior as a man. Jesus was completely human, and specifically, he was completely a man. Jesus is the God-man. That's how we describe him. He's very God and very human. He's the God-man. He's not a man who became a God. There have been none of those. He's not merely a godly man. There's a lot of those. Just look around. But he is the God-man. Very God, very human. Completely God, completely human. I know it doesn't make any mathematical sense, but he's 100% God and 100% human 100% of the time. That doesn't make mathematical sense, but it makes great biblical sense because Jesus is the God-man. His unaltered essence, his nature, his morphe, his form, he is the God-man. He emptied himself. He became nothing. He appeared as a man. He humbled himself, became obedient to death, even death on a cross. This God-man who came to earth as a man, he humbled himself. People ask the question sometimes, um, how human is Jesus? And I would say he is human in nearly every way. What do I mean by that? When Jesus was hungry, he ate. Guys, can I get an amen? Amen. When he was sleepy, he slept. After preaching all day long, his voice was tired. After walking mile upon mile up and down hills, the muscles in his legs ached. If it's even possible for Jesus to swing the hammer in the carpenter's shop, miss the nail, and hit his finger. If that's even possible, if he did that, he grimaced in pain. 
Because he was completely human. He was human in nearly every way. Elsewhere, the scripture says that he was tempted in every way just as we are. That's how human he is. But he was without sin. That's the one way he's not like us. He is not sinful. You and I are sinful. Because we are sinful, we need a perfect substitute. And only the God-man can be that perfect substitute. Only God has the cachet to seek and save us. And only a perfect human can serve as our substitute on the cross. So Jesus is the God-man. So literally, he hung there to make you holy. He who knew no sin became sin for us. He had to be perfect. He had to be a man. He had to be God. He is the perfect God-man as the only suitable substitute for your sins and for mine. How human was Jesus? Human in nearly every way. He was tempted just as we are. He had feelings just like we have, except he was without sin. He humbled himself. I take that to mean that humility is not quite natural. You've got to make yourself humble. What's the natural sinful bent of life? To be selfish, to be conceited, and think of yourself before you think of other people. I think this is why Paul is writing this exalted prose to the church. He's saying, as you interact with each other and you face conflict externally and strife internally, as you have to deal with each other and other people and the culture and deal with false doctrine and all of that, just look to Jesus and, and, and be like Jesus and humble yourself. If you don't do it intentionally, you won't be humble. I mean, God may make you humble. He may humiliate you. But it's all far better if we just humble ourselves. Just follow the lead of Jesus. And Jesus humbled himself. He laid down his rights card. Once again, I think that's a good lesson for us. I think that's why Paul is writing these words to the church as we deal with each other. That we have to be like Jesus, have the mindset of Jesus. He was humble, yes, and he laid down his rights card for he emptied himself, absolutely. And what does that look like in your life? Well, there are times when you have the right to hold a grudge. What was done to you, what was said about you, how he treated you, how she treated you. You have the right to hold a grudge. I'm in your corner, brother. I believe in you, sister. I know you have the right to hold a grudge, but you lay down the rights card, and instead of holding a grudge, you extend grace, don't you? You have the right to blast somebody. After what they did, after what she said, you've got the right to blast them, but instead you bless them, don't you? You have the right. You have the right for revenge for the rest of your life. Because of what was done to you, it is so almost unforgivable. And and you have the right to revenge and retaliate against them. But instead, 
Instead, you forgive them, don't you? It was Philip Yancey who gave us this great definition of forgiveness. He said, forgiveness is learning to set the prisoner free only to discover that you were the prisoner. Because the reality is, when you and I nurse a grudge and we resent and we hold revenge in our heart, what we think we're doing is hurting that other person who wronged us, but the reality is, we're only incarcerating our own selves. So forgiveness is learning to set the prisoner free only to discover that you were the prisoner. You have rights, you have entitlement, uh, you, you have times when you can almost justify your selfishness, but look to Jesus. He is the author and perfecter of our faith. What did he do? Paul says to the Philippian church, he laid down his rights card for he emptied himself and he humbled himself. And that's something you got to do intentionally. It doesn't come naturally for you to be humble. Now in church, we've almost perfected false piety, haven't we? we we've almost perfected that false sense of humility. And, and, and if you've been in church very long, you can smell it a mile away. You can see it three miles away. You know when somebody's being real with you and when somebody's just being so fake and phony that all they've got is false humility. Paul is not saying that Jesus had false humility. He humbled himself. How low did Jesus go to the point of death? For he became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Jesus humbled himself to the point that God died. Think about that. Jesus One person, two natures, very God, very human. He stepped out of heaven, stepped into earth. He emptied himself. He laid down some of his rights and privileges and entitlements. Uh, He limited his omniscience, his omnipresence. He came not to be served, but to serve. He came, and ultimately, he came to be obedient to death. God came to die. He became obedient to death. And in the action of Jesus becoming obedient to death, he made death obedient to him. Because Jesus is the one who's calling the shots. Jesus is the one who says, no one takes my life from me, but I voluntarily lay it down. And if I have the authority to lay it down, I have the authority to pick it back up again. Jesus is teaching death a lesson or two, isn't he? Jesus goes to Calvary and he makes death obedient to him for he is the author of life. He became obedient to death, even death on a despicable cross. The grossest way to die in the first century was crucifixion. In fact, you go years earlier in the book of Deuteronomy, even Moses said, cursed is the one who dies on a tree. Cursed is the one who hangs on a tree. That foreshadowing of the crucifixion event. And the Romans had perfected crucifixion. Man, they knew how to do it. It had become not only a science, but an art to them. They knew how to exact excruciating pain. They had perfected the form of execution. Many have said in the days of Jesus, in those few years, the Romans crucified some 30,000 individuals. Because the Roman Empire said that if you're a criminal, if you get off the beaten path, 
We'll make an example out of you. We'll hang you up outside of town. And we can really, um, we can make you hang there as long as we want you to hang there. And then when it's time for you to really die, we can make sure you really die. We can make it as excruciating as it needs to be. You step out of line and the Roman government said, we will make an example of you. And even in all of that, Jesus is the one calling the shots. He's obedient to death, even death on a cross. So that in the third decade of the first century, Jesus made his way through the streets of Jerusalem. He was bruised. He was bloody. He was beaten. He wasn't even recognizable. He didn't even look human. He made his way up Calvary's hill. And there he permitted and allowed the Roman soldiers to stretch him wide, drive rusty spikes through his wrists and the feet, hoist him to the air. And for a few hours, Jesus hung there. And in that few-hour window, one of the most amazing things of the gospel is that God squeezed an eternity's worth of condemnation into those few hours of crucifixion. And Jesus knew what was going to happen. He knew how, what it was going to entail. He knew when the payment had been made in full because Jesus declares to death, to Telestai, it is finished. He bowed his head. He gave up the ghost because he made your sin debt and he paid it in full. Not one second too long, not one second too short. He died so that you might live. They took his dead body off the cross and they placed it into a borrowed grave. They rolled a stone in front of it. Jesus humbled himself. He became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Jesus said in John's gospel, no greater love than when a man lays down his life for his friends. And that's what I call you, Jesus said. You are my friends. In just a few strokes of the pen, Paul takes us from the humiliation of the cross on that Friday to the glorious resurrection of Jesus on Easter Sunday morning. Because just that very next line, therefore God exalted him to the highest place, gave him the name that's above every name. At the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow in heaven on earth and under the earth, and every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Do you see what Paul did in just a few syllables, with just a few letters, just a few words? He goes from the gruesome, gory details of crucifixion on Friday to the glorious resurrection of Easter Sunday morning. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place. This one who died didn't stay dead. This one in a borrowed grave was there only because he was going to borrow it for a couple of days. He stayed there on Friday, stayed there all day Saturday, even into Sunday. But early on Sunday morning, the gospel writer tells us that Jesus was raised from the dead. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place. That when you and I come to verse 9, when Paul says, therefore, God exalted him, that is the glorious resurrection of Easter Sunday morning. The one who was humiliated is the one who is exalted. And how high did God lift Jesus? He exalted him to the highest place. 
You can't get any higher than Christ. You can't get any more exalted than Christ. He's in a place of prominence. He's in the uh, place of authority. You can't get any higher than the seat of Christ. He is exalted to the highest place so that he's given the name greater than every other name. Not only is Jesus the sweetest name, but it's the greatest name. And if his name is the greatest name, if his name is the highest name, then every other name of every other person has to be found under the authority of Jesus. So that tells you that Vladimir Putin is under the authority of Jesus. The newly installed King Charles of England, under the authority of Jesus. President Joe Biden, under the authority of Jesus. Former President Donald J. Trump, under the authority of Jesus. Every Bill, Brad, and Barry, every Susan, Sally and Sherry under the authority of Jesus. Every preacher, every politician, every teacher, every amusement park ticket taker, every sanitation worker, every CEO under the authority of Jesus. Everybody in every household, everybody on every street, everybody in every community, everybody living in every alleyway, every person in every town, every individual in every city, every person in all 50 states, every individual in the United States of America, every person in the nations under the authority of Jesus. I don't know if y'all are following me yet, but what I'm trying to tell you is that every person who has ever lived, every person that's living right now, every person that will live in the days to come under the authority of Jesus, every boy, every girl, every man, every woman, every person ever created is made under the authority of Jesus. Jesus has the greatest name. He has the highest name. Therefore, every other name must be under Christ. It's not just every other name. It's every other thing is under the authority of Jesus. Every business, every corporation, every mom and pop, and every monopoly under the authority of Jesus Every church, every religious group, every small group, every choir under the authority of Jesus. Every sickness, every sadness, every cancer, every global pandemic under the authority of Jesus. Every storm, every tsunami, every hurricane, every tornado under the authority of Jesus. Every sin, every setback, every flaw, every fracture under the authority of Jesus. Everything seen, everything unseen, everything visible, everything invisible under the authority of Jesus. Every argument, every battle, every skirmish, every war, everything under the authority of Jesus. There's not anything that's not under the authority of Christ. His name is the greatest name. His name is the highest name. So every other name of every other one and every other name of every other thing has to be under the feet of Jesus. Paul says, therefore God exalted him to the highest place, gave him the name that's above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee must bow in heaven, on earth, and under the earth, and every tongue must confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. 
what Paul is saying is that there is coming a day when the lordship of Jesus Christ will no longer be debated, when the lordship of Jesus Christ will no longer be denied. There's coming a day when Jesus splits the eastern sky. There's coming a day when Jesus descends to rescue his church. There's coming a day when Jesus returns that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that when Jesus comes, sovereign gravity will take over. Everybody will be weak in the knees. Everybody will bow. Either you bow by now, by faith, or you bow then by force. You bow now by conviction, or you bow then by compulsion. You bow now out of salvation. You'll bow then out of condemnation. But regardless, every knee is going to bow, and every tongue will confess. I'm convinced there are going to be some uh, heretics. There are going to be some reprobates. There'll be some sinners that in that moment when their knee bows, they don't even know why they're bowing, but they'll have to acknowledge the one who's coming at me is King of Kings and Lord of Lords. They will declare with their lips, words they've never wanted to say before. That Jesus, yes, he really is king. They will have to say it. Why? Because sovereign gravity will take over and every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. Why? Because God has exalted this Christ. He's higher than every everybody else. He's more glorious than anything else. He is king of kings. He is Lord of lords. He is Christ. So this Jesus... He will return. And when he comes, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess. Do you ever ask yourself, what is this world coming to? You see the images on your television, you read the reports that come across your telephone, you ask yourself, what is this world coming to? I'll tell you what it's coming to. It's coming to that undeniable day when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. Paul simply reminds the church at Philippi what I'm reminding you of today. That the Jesus of our gospel, he is very God and very human. He stepped out of heaven and stepped into earth. He emptied himself of rights and privileges He laid down his rights card, and you and I ought to do that for one another as well. He humbled himself, and you and I ought to take his lead on that and humble ourselves. He became obedient to death, and in that process, he made death obedient to him. He was crucified. The lowest moment of the passage is when he was crucified. But then verse 9 happens, therefore, therefore God exalted him on the third day and gave him the name that's above every name. And at the name of Jesus, everybody will acknowledge that he's Lord. So Paul is urging the church, just recommit to Christ today. Just remember, all of your conflict, all of your struggles, whether it be external or internal, outside the stained glass windows, inside the stained glass windows, don't look to the conflict, look to the Christ of the conflict. Because if you know who Jesus is, his identity, and if you know what he did for you, his activity, You'll be able to handle any conflict. You'll be able to handle the struggle and the strife that comes at you from the adversary. You'll be able to survive because you know who Jesus is and know what he's done. So Paul just tells the church, recommit to Christ. Maybe there's somebody here this morning and you need to commit to Christ. Because you can't recommit to him unless you're committed to him already. 
And maybe there's somebody here and you've never accepted Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. Today can be the day of your salvation. Oh, but maybe there are a lot of us that we become discouraged and deflated because of the crisis and the problems and the predicament and the trouble and the sadness and the sickness and the conflict of our lives. And today we just need to remember what the hymn writer said. All to Jesus I surrender and all to him I freely give and I will ever love and trust him and in his presence I'll daily live so I surrender it all. All to thee, my blessed Savior, I surrender it all. Surrender everything to the one who gave everything for your salvation. He is the king and he is worth it. He is Lord and there's nobody else like him. So all to thee, my blessed Savior, I surrender it all. Heavenly Father, we bow before you. We thank you for this word, which is a good reminder for some, great instruction for us all. And Father, help us to recommit ourselves to Christ today. Lord, today we call people in this moment of invitation uh, to salvation, uh, to church membership, uh, to prayer here at the altar, maybe calling out the called, those that you have placed a call upon their life to serve you in full-time ministry, whatever it may be, Lord, may your spirit move and may we respond in obedience. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen.